Before we get into Judges chapter 6, I'd like to pray with you. Would you join me in that? Father, I believe that you specifically want to speak to an individual in this auditorium today, and I don't know who it is, but you do. You, you alone know what ventures are in front of every single person who's here this morning, and some are stepping into new things, perhaps even this week or over the next couple of weeks, and they are at a point where they really need to fully trust you. God, I ask that you would reveal specifically yourself through this uh, word this morning, through what you want to say through the book of Judges. It's a very ancient story, yet we know that you had them write it down for us, for our learning. But I'm willing to recognize, Father, none of that will take place absent of your Holy Spirit. You've said your Spirit is our teacher and our guide, so we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us and would lead us and that you would cause us to see things we cannot see on our own. We want to lean back into that song, Father. We want to declare that you are able. We want to look forward, believing that you are able and that we can trust you. Strengthen us in that, Father, as we look at this now. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know that we're working through the series called I Need a Hero, in which we're examining some of the individuals who are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. And Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the heroes of the faith, doesn't name them all, but it, it names quite a large number of them. And we've looked at Noah, and we've looked at Moses, and today we're, we're going to look at Gideon. Now, up to this point, the writer of Hebrews has spent some time spending detail on Noah and Moses, but look at what he says about Gideon. In chapter 11, verse 32, he says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon. It's because he spent so much time talking about Noah and Moses. He doesn't have any time left, but we have some time. As a matter of fact, we're going to take the time. And I want you to understand, although there's a hundred verses in the story of Gideon, we're not going to do them all this morning, okay? Just to keep you from being scared. You will get home in time to watch the Detroit Lions or go to your lunch event, whatever you need to do. But this is a little bit longer passage, and so we're going to do it in a non-typical New Hope fashion. Typically, we take a couple of verses and we really break them down in a, a very much an expo- expositional way. Today, we're going to do it more of in a story form, very narrative. So it's going to move really, really quickly. And I'm just going to ask you to skip along with me as we skip from big sections to big sections. Here's what you need to know about Gideon. He's a very simple man. And the story of Judges doesn't actually start out with him. It starts out with the background telling us what's going on. He's a farmer and he's working on his dad's farm. And here's the background. Verse 1 says this, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Now, not every single person in the nation was evil, or we wouldn't have a hero rising up. But what we understand is this nation as a whole, the people of God, had moved away from God. So God's people are not living for God. We'd ask ourselves, how bad did it get? It got so bad, by the time you get to Judges chapter 17, it says everyone did what was fit in their own eyes. They, they, just, they created their own law system. Whatever they wanted to be legal became legal. So God put them in the hands of the Midianites, at, at the mercy of the Midianites. God did that. Look with me at verse 2. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. 
For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. Yep, same Gaza, the one you hear about in the news all the time. There it is. And leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. This vast army. Way too many to count. Matter of fact, Judges chapter 8 tells us there was 135,000 fighting warriors that were part of Midian who came against Israel at this time. And the destruction is so great, he can only say it's like a plague of locusts. For seven years, every time there's a harvest, they sweep in and they steal whatever they want. And Israel is apparently helpless to resist. So in distress, they cry to God. And they ask, God, please help us. And what does God do in return? He skewers them. Not what you would expect. Watch with me what happens in verse 7. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian... He sent them a preacher. He says he sent them a prophet. And this is what God said to them. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. Really not what you want to hear from God when you're crying for help, right? You want to say, God, help me, and you want God to send you a hero, but God, instead of sending them a hero, sends them a preacher. Do you ever notice that God never bothers with small talk? He's very deliberate, goes right to the heart of the matter, very penetrating. What had happened with these people? Over a course of 300 years, a nation that was founded upon godly principles, who had followed God in the beginning, drifted away, and they dropped their God standard. They became fat and lazy. Their affluence caused them to lose their morality. Uh, We know that morality never disappears as an explosion, right? It's always an erosion. It's very slow. Over a period of time, it creeps in. Well, that's what happened with these individuals. So God finally comes to verse 10 and He says, you haven't listened to me. And what's unexpected about that is that when they pray, instead of getting a hero, they get a preacher. Why? Because God wants to be really clear with them that they have forfeited the privilege of God having their back. That anything that God does from that point forward is out of His grace and out of His mercy. They have turned their back on God. So the preacher comes to remind them, you have given up on God. You don't deserve what you're about to get. So this is a really tense moment in the history of Israel. Their fate hangs in the balance. So at this point now, enter the hero. Now, if Noah was a really willing hero and Moses was the anti-hero, then we would have to say that Gideon is the most unlikely hero and he'll tell us why from his own words. Gideon has got really bad third quarter earnings. Wall Street's given him a pounding and look what happens to him in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terabith at Ophrah. That's, that's an oak tree which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So he's in hiding, right? He's in hiding because he's just like Moses. 
Somebody wants him. They want what he has. So God's going to call him out of hiding. It's the peak of the harvest. He's brought in his crop. And he's about to try and put some away for for his family. Now, there's apparently a very small amount of grain here, but he can't take it to the grain elevator, the normal place where they thresh wheat. Why? Because we're told he's in a wine press. Where is a wine press? It's at the very bottom of a hill. A grain elevator's at the top of the hill. That's where the threshing floor is. So as you throw the wheat up in the air, the wind will blow the chaff away and the heavy kernels settle to the ground. In a wine press, which is at the bottom of the hill, it's carved into stone. There's no wind there. So Gideon's throwing his wheat up in the air and it's all coming right back down on him and it's getting in his neck. Because there is no wind, why is he there? We're told he's hiding. He's hiding from the Midianites. This is humiliating. Why would you want to be there? Well, he's afraid of what would happen. So we see in verse 12, an angel of the Lord shows up. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, he's calling him a mighty warrior, right? That's not very consistent with what's in front of us this morning, is it? This doesn't look like a mighty man. Does a mighty man hide in a wine press? To keep everything from the surrounding army. This doesn't feel like a mighty man. This is telling me that how God sees us is not how we see us, is it? That's not the case. How we see ourselves many times is not how God sees us. God sees Gideon as a mighty warrior. Why does he say it here? This is in anticipation. Anticipation that there's going to be some behavior in the future which is consistent with this title. He's willing to call him in advance who he is. So in verse 12, he uses a very familiar phrase, and he says, the Lord is with you. That should immediately take you back to last week when we talked about Moses on Mount Sinai. And Moses said to God, who should I tell the people that you are? And God's response was, I am that I am, right? But we learned last week that God linked that with I am what? I am with you. I am present with you, Moses. I will be going with you before Pharaoh. Well, God says the same thing right here. The Lord is with you. He's reminding us of his presence. See, it's the promise of God with us. Now, the last thing that Gideon needs at this moment is to have his productivity interrupted. He's trying to get in, do his thing, get out, and disappear so Midian doesn't know that he's got grain he's hiding from them. So you see no greeting, no hello whatsoever. Look with me at verse 13. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Gideon's a man with attitude, right? It's just right there. It's just under the surface, and it doesn't take much to draw him out. So he jumps right back with a challenge. Look at the rest of verse 13. And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. If I had a referee's whistle, I'd be blowing it right now. Flag on the field, right? There's a foul. There's a penalty that's just been committed. Have you ever heard someone blame God for their bad decisions? Okay, right here. He's blaming God for the circumstances that they're in. Apparently, Gideon has never read verse 10. Verse 10 says, you have not listened to me. You're not doing what I told you to do. So there's this penalty on the field because Gideon has really weak theology. He's saying God is to blame. 
Is it God's fault? Or, or does Gideon just really have a poor perspective? See, what's clear here is he doesn't know who's talking to him. He doesn't understand who this one is, so he goes into grumble mode. Watch God's response, verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Look at verse 14 very carefully, and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's always used in the Old Testament for the appearance of Yahovah, Jehovah. God himself, no longer the angel of the Lord, but now the Lord, Jehovah, speaking directly to him. See, something happens in this turning. We don't know what, but in this moment, there's this piercing stare, goes right to Gideon's heart. And there's this very subtle, significant change in the language. God speaking, and God sees something in Gideon that he has not yet seen in himself. Something he doesn't know about his own character. God sees capacity because he says in verse 14, go in this might of yours. What might, what possible strength could a guy have who's hiding in a wine press, who's trying to duck from everybody seeing him? What does he possess? Might that comes from God. Go in this might of yours. Attach that with the Lord turning to him. He says, do not I send you. See, that's his strength, that God is with him. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, go and I will be with you always. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. Moses, go before Pharaoh. I am going with you. See, this is consistent throughout the Bible. God saying to his people, I'm the one who's going with you. Just like Moses, though, Gideon's going to try and duck out of his responsibilities. Look with me at verse 15. And he said to him, Please, Lord, now how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. In other words, I have no superpowers. I don't have a cape. There's no S emblazoned on my chest. He believes that he's less than. Why do we always feel the need to tell God what we can't do? Like we're telling him something he doesn't know, right? We always have that tendency to say, God, I can't do that because of this. This is what you see Gideon doing here. See, in Gideon's mind, God can't use him because he's nothing. Do you notice the two words he uses? My family is the weakest, and I am the least. You're about to discover why he says that specifically about himself. But he's trying to disqualify himself from being used by God. He doesn't know that God loves to use normal. Do you know that this morning? That God loves to use normal? L- let me remind you of what Paul said to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1.26 For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. That verse would really be insulting if it wasn't true, right? It's true. I was not born noble. I bet most of us here were not born noble this morning. I, I would say I would not claim to be wise. I'm not claiming to be powerful. But God chose the weak things to show himself strong. That's what Gideon's missing here. God delights in using normal. So the temptation that you have to disqualify yourself 
is very common with humanity. You see Gideon doing it here thousands of years ago to take himself out of the game. So look at the response, verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Now, we're going to skip forward all the way down to verse 21, but at this point, Gideon begins to realize he's not talking to somebody ordinary here. Matter of fact, he's talking to somebody extraordinary, but he doesn't yet know who it is, so he decides, I'm going to bring a sacrifice out to this person. I'll bring an offering to him. And so when he does, he prepares the meat, he brings it out. The individual tells him to put it on a rock and and look with me at what happens in verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So burst of fire, boom, vision's over. He doesn't see the angel anymore and he knows in that moment he's had a God encounter. And verse 22 tells us he realized what happened. It says this, Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. We're going to skip all the way down to verse 25, but here's what happens. He thinks he's going to die because he's just had a God encounter. God assures him he's not going to die. And a matter of fact, God shows up later that night. Look with me at verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old, And pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with wood. Of the Asherah pole you shall cut down. Now he has a really serious issue. He belongs to a family that worships Satan. They are Baal worshipers. When you see the word Baal in the Bible, it's Baal, and the El is representation of the God that they worship. Baal is the, the, this God, small g, whom they worship, which is really satanic worship, always linked with the Asherah pole. I'm not going to describe that to you right now. You can look, up, look it up later yourself, but it is a vile, vile practice, and that's what Israel fell into. So we've got a situation here in which he's got to deal with his own household. Before he can ever walk on the battlefield, Gideon has to take a stand for God in his own home. He's got to point out to his entire family what they're doing. Matter of fact, his entire town. And Baal worship was incredibly popular. Gideon knew he's going to be risking his own life. So the assignment is super hard because people are going to want to kill him for what God has asked him to do. Tear down Baal's altar. Use your daddy's prize bowl to do it. And then when you've torn down the altar, take your daddy's prize bowl, build a new altar, and sacrifice it to me. And by the way, use the firewood from the Asherah pole to do it. I love God's sense of humor. I think this is really intense, but you see what he's doing here. Why is he making it so significant? Because a purging has to take place in order for God to use him. Until he deals with the sin in his own household, God can't use him. So he's saying this, literally, Gideon, put your past in your past. Drive a stake through it. Don't let that be part of your present. Put it behind you so that I can use you. And I want you to notice very specifically in verse 26 what God asked him to do. Because I'm going to ask you to do this later today. He tells him to put the new altar in a high spot. He says put it in a stronghold, in the height 
where everybody will see it when they wake up in the morning to know that you have stood for me. Now what you discover when you get to verse 27 is this is not a brave man. This is not your ordinary normal hero. But here's where I give him an A+. He does have a greater fear of God than he does of man. Watch verse 27. So Gideon took men, ten men of his servants, and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Uh, We're going to skip all the way down to verse 33, but what you discover is that Gideon did precisely what God had asked him to do. And the people of the town wanted to murder him for what he had done. His dad steps in and spares his life. But here's what really pops out to me. Gideon knew his culture really well. And he knew that everybody in his city was going to be out for him. These people are so anti-God that the man who follows God has now become an enemy of the population. All the town has turned against him except for his own dad. And apparently one of his own men rats him out, but we don't have time for that. Go with me to verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. I'm going to help you put an image in your mind right now of what he's seeing. I know this is going to be painful for some of you, but I'd like you to picture the big house over in Ann Arbor right at this moment. Okay? Picture it on football Saturday afternoon when one of the world's largest outdoor stadiums is packed with people. We understand that at the University of Michigan, they can host somewhere between 115, 117, upwards of 120,000 people if they really cram them in. Add 15,000 to that number, and Gideon is being told through this passage right here that we're looking at that he's going to be up against 135,000 warriors camped in the valley of Jezreel, which is just four miles away from where he's at. Go with me to verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abyssalites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. So here's a man who is surrendering to God's call, and as a result, because he's taking steps in God's direction, he's being covered with the Holy Spirit. And do you notice in verse 34 who the first people are to follow him? The very first people are his own hometown. Those people who wanted to kill him for pulling down the Baal altar are now the first people to respond. So apparently, Gideon's conviction is becoming contagious. This reformation that he's begun at home is actually starting to accomplish something. Go forward with me to verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Verse 38, and it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test you just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Now, let's just assume that Gideon was able to sleep the night before, all right? And do you think when he woke up the next morning that he ran 
on the second day to see if there was a dry piece of wool laying on the ground? I'm a little torn on this because I'm not entirely sure because if he arrives on that second day and it is indeed dry the way that he asked God to make it dry, that means he's all in, right? Because it's his test. He said, God, I'll, I'll do this if you do this. But if he arrives and it's full of water on the second day like it was on the first day, it's like, got to pass. I guess God's not really in this. So I'm thinking he ran. He really wanted to check this out to see what's going on with this. But here's what's really important. As he goes to this process of asking God to reveal himself through this little piece of wool laying on the ground, you see a man who's full of doubt. And here's what he's not doubting. He's not doubting God's capacity, is he? He's already said, you have miracles by which you delivered us from Egypt. He understands what God can do. Here's what I think he's doubting, and this is what I believe most people struggle with. Most people really doubt God's selection. I think he's doubting that God selected him because you look very closely at verse 36, and if you are going to save Israel by my hand, did God really choose the right guy? Am I really the one? See, he's insignificant in his own mind because his family is messed up. He's the weakest and the least. Who am I to save Israel? So that's why you see him going through this process. But here's something that might have escaped your attention previously. Very important to notice. Gideon has already assembled his army before he puts the fleece out. He's already called the warriors to battle. But then he goes through this process. Why? Because he's filled with doubt. Now understand, this fleece process is what Gideon needs. It's for him. He's the one set the standards. He's the one asking for God to evidence himself. So God condescends to answer him. And notice, he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, oh, Gideon, I can't believe you have no faith. As a matter of fact, what God does is he says, I want you to know that I will be with you. And so he does what Gideon asked. But here's what most people miss. By the time you get to verse 10 in the next chapter, we're going to move to it very quickly, you discover God has a far bigger miracle in mind for Gideon to understand what's going on. Move forward with me to verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Marah in the valley. So they're four miles away. They're 10 miles west of the Jordan River. Why is that significant? Because apparently as you read Judges chapter 8, you discover that they know all about the 32,000 men. They know what Gideon has done. They understand that he's assembled an army, but they consider it completely insignificant as though they mean nothing. They're no legitimate threat. Move forward to verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So two-thirds of the army takes this opportunity to totally disengage. They're they're willing to say, we are cowards. We don't want to be here. So time out. At this point, Gideon's got to be thinking, oh, that is just great. 
just at the point when I thought the odds were terrible, four to one, 135,000 against 32,000, then God does this thinning process. You know what the odds are now? 13 to one. Went from four to one to 13 to one. This is God's first step in troop reduction. And he's allowing the cowardly to leave. What is your God doing here? He's removing all opportunity for self-salvation. For someone to say, I saved myself. God in the Old Testament, consistent with God in the New Testament. For by grace are you saved, not of yourself, lest any man would boast of his own work. Because our God doesn't share glory with anyone, does he, church? So we see in verse 4, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. So God sets up this special screening process by which he's going to thin the ranks even further. And so the the 10,000 go about this drinking process. Skip with me down to verse uh, um, 6 now. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. I've had people ask me after every service this weekend, what does that mean? When they're talking about how they lapped water, well, they're not drinking like a dog, okay? It means they're cupping the water up to their mouth and, and pouring it into their mouth. So God begins the separation process that nets 300 men. So if you're like me and, and I'm like Gideon, if, if we're one of those wannabe heroes, we're watching this process really close, right? We're going to be looking at our remaining 10,000 to see what is God up to? Because he's already taken 22,000 of my soldiers. Now what is he doing? So we watch very closely here and we see we've got these 300 who have been separated out. So if I'm thinking like Gideon, here's what I'm thinking. Okay, 300 guys did this thing. I'm okay. 300 can leave. I've still got 9,700 then. In in that moment, he's got to be thinking that. But then God intervenes again and look at what God says. And the Lord said in verse 7 to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his own home. What? Are you crazy? We would never say that to God, right? We would never say when the odds are against us, are you crazy? But we think it. Gideon has to be thinking this. Now the battle forces are 450 to 1. See, Gideon's never had the privilege that you have this morning. He never got to read Judges 6 in advance and Judges 7. He didn't know what God was going to do. He just had to trust God. Now, there's something very significant that comes up here in the next verse, verse 8. It says, So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, focus on that word, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below them in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. So the 9,700 who leave and go back to their tents have left something behind. They leave behind their trumpets. And don't think of a musical instrument trumpet. Think of a shofar. This is a ram's horn. But focus in on one particular word there. We're told he retained the 300. In the Hebrew language, it has a very specific meaning. In other translations that you might have in your hand this morning, it could be the word kept. And it's always used of trying to rein someone in. Okay? 
the, the 300 are watching the 9,700 leave and lay down their weapons and their ram's horns, and they're realizing we're the only ones, and so they want to vanish also. So Gideon is keeping them. Guys, don't leave. You're my 300. Don't wander away. So we're told he retained them. There's this really strong urge to vanish. So if you're thinking Gideon's weak in the knees at this point, you're right. So look at what God does next. Go with me to verse 10. But if you are afraid, don't you love God's sense of humor? Is if a word there? You are afraid. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. So statements like these really help me to know that our God has a sense of humor, church. Because when he says, if you are afraid, I'm thinking they're already lacing up their Nikes. They're ready to run all the way down to the camp to see what in the world is God talking about? How is he going to strengthen us through whatever we see there? So here's what we see in verse 12. And the Midianites... And the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore. So here's what I'm envisioning. This first view has to be incredibly terrifying. They're down on one side of the valley. Gideon's been on the other side four miles away. He comes up over the rise, and all he can see like sand on the seashore, warriors. He can count his 300 easily. Now, if you're close enough to hear the enemy talk, you're close enough, right? He's so close, he's way, way, way inside enemy lines. He's close enough to see the glimmer of their sword in the moonlight. He knows he's way into enemy territory. And what happens? Here's the amazing thing to me. Out of 135,000 warriors, who does Gideon end up next to but the guy who had the bad dream at night that something horrible was going to happen to them? This is how God is going to strengthen him. So watch what unfolds here. Verse 13, when Gideon came... Behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, and it turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he what, church? He worshiped. Why in that moment? Go back and read the story. Did he worship after God gave him a wet piece of wool? No. Did he worship after the wool became dry? No. Those were Gideon's tests. God says, you want to believe me, Gideon? You want to believe my word? Gideon has just watched God's word be confirmed. That's why he worships after God's word is shown true. He knows there's no way this is coincidence. See, this is way better than a wet piece of wool. What you're seeing here, church, is the transformation of a man who goes from hiding in a wine press to being someone who can see 
what others do not see, who can believe God for things that others cannot believe God for, who can do things that others cannot do because he's understanding he can take God at his word. God never lies, and God has just fulfilled it to Gideon. So we see in the remainder of verse 15, it says, and as a result, here's what he's going to do. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Why in that moment does he have so much confidence? Because he is overwhelmed by God's provision. God has made a commitment to him. I will be with you, Gideon. I will go with you. You will win. This confirmation is like none other. He's never experienced anything like this. God made a commitment that he is able. The thought of that very phrase took me all the way back to that old Baptist hymn where it was turned from First Timothy in, into a song that many people know today if they think back to the old hymns. Look with me on the screen at 2 Timothy 1.12. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. See, Paul knew that in the New Testament. Gideon learned that in the Old Testament. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able That's what Gideon's learning here. See, Hebrews 11, it's all about ordinary people who dared to believe God for the extraordinary, and they act upon his promises. Here we come into the very last couple verses, and we discover that now Gideon is finally ready. He's dealt with the sin in his life. He's confronted his fear, and he's worshiped God, and now he's just got to act on what God has revealed. So let's go to verse 16 and end this. It says, And he divided the 300 men into three companies, And put trumpets into their hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Did you ever go to a sleepover when you were a kid and somebody had a flashlight and they decided this would be really fun and and they put the flashlight under their chin when it's dark out? You know what I'm talking about? It looks really creepy, right? It it doesn't look creepy to you. It, It looks creepy to everybody who's looking at it. It looks ghostly, okay? Flashlights. You're seeing the torches go in the jar. These guys are carrying the jars up to the rim of the hill. They've got this eerie glow coming out of the jar. 300 individuals, and you can't tell what's in their hand, but all you can see is the silhouette of soldiers all the way around the rim of the canyon, split up into three companies. Here's what you may not know. Every time in ancient warfare, when there was a nighttime battle that took place, if you saw a torch, a torch represented a legion. So what they're looking at here is the potential that the Midianites are going to be coming up against 300 legions of soldiers. They don't know. They don't know that they're not in a death trap. Now, they've each been given this, not a musical instrument, but a trumpet, a shofar. Well, a trumpet was always given to the leader of a legion in order to command his troop. So Gideon is setting up this bluff game. This warfare against these individuals. And after blowing the trumpet, there's supposed to be a war cry. Go forward with me into verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. When they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke their jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, if you're sound asleep, 
If it's midnight and you begin hearing a piercing battle cry, it immediately is going to put you in panic mode, right? These individuals are sleeping in the valley. We're told it's the second watch, which means it's around midnight time. And to add to the nightmare, this battle cry pierces through the air. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Can you say chaos? See, all they're really holding in their hand is a trumpet and a torch. They don't have a sword. There's no sword that's been given to them. I'm not even sure they have 300 swords. So they're bluffing in hopes that there's going to be some response because this is specifically what their leader has told them to do. Now watch with me in verse 21. This is how it ends. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. Verse 22, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So the enemy is convinced they're about to be massacred. And in all the confusion, they begin fighting each other. There's no uniforms in this day. They don't know who they're fighting against, and it's dark. So they begin slashing their way. And Gideon's army, with his 300, stand as motionless as a wall. With this eerie glow, they're able to look down in the valley and see the delivery of God's hand. 135,000 soldiers is reduced to 15,000 in the blink of an eye. They begin killing each other. And the remaining 15,000, you can read about it in Judges 8, they run out to the wilderness trying to get away. Gideon eventually catches up with them as well. Here's where we land. This hero, this unwilling hero, this unlikely hero, has come a long, long way from hiding in a wine press, hasn't he? How did that happen? Little steps along the way, trusting God. He starts by tearing down the altar, doing what God had asked him to do. God spoke, he heard, he believed God's word. That led him to the obedience. It's the same thing we talked about with Moses and with Noah. God spoke, they hear, they believe, and they act upon it. What a huge encouragement to you this morning, especially if you're someone who struggles with believing that God could ever use you. My family is too messed up. You don't know what I've done in my past. Those are all Gideon arguments. Those are the same things that he would say. You believe that God couldn't make anything out of you? You really need to look at Gideon's story closely. The man's hiding in a wine press. He's not living by faith. He's living by sight. He doesn't know that God has something much bigger in store for him. But here's an important part to remember as you leave this morning. If Gideon had remained in the wine press, and he could have, he could have said, I'm not your guy, God, he would have never been written about in Hebrews chapter 11. You wouldn't see him appear in Scripture. He wouldn't be identified as one of the heroes of the faith. A nobody from nowhere with a screwed up family An almighty God comes to him and tells him, I am with you. Doesn't deserve it, does he? It's God's grace. God has said the same thing to you. I am with you. You belong to me. You're one of my children. I'm with you. No matter where you go, I'm with you. And better yet, God's going to make him into a conqueror. He doesn't deserve that either. See, here's the good news of God's word. We don't have to stay where we are. You're seeing the gospel in the Old Testament. 
The New Testament gospel played out in the Old Testament. Through faith in Jesus, anybody can be changed. Let me end with this, reminding you, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. See, Gideon's story is your story this morning. Whatever you've got in your past, God says, put it in your past. I want you to move forward. I want you to let me use you. I want to work through you. It's good news for anybody who wants a new start, a brand new beginning. I'm going to ask you to do this morning something that I asked the 9 o'clock service to do and the Saturday night service to do. And I, I want you to take this very seriously and ponder this this week. If you have never taken a stand for the Lord, maybe you've been a believer a long time, but you have never taken a stand for the Lord by being baptized, next weekend here at New Hope is a baptism service. And I want you to take seriously the opportunity that perhaps that tank up there can become your altar, the thing that you put up really high on the hill so that your entire village will know that you stand for God. And if you haven't done that before, take this seriously, that maybe God is calling you to take a stand, to put your stake in the ground. Talk to Gary, talk to myself this week. Let us know if you want to participate, and I promise you, New Hope loves to applaud baptisms. We will celebrate with you if that's what you choose to do. And for the others here this morning, maybe you've been baptized, maybe you're a follower of Jesus, and you're not sure about all that you've read this morning, how this applies to you, let me encourage you to consider taking these thoughts into the workplace with you tomorrow, into your home this afternoon. If there's something that you need to identify to your family to say, you know what, this thing that we've been doing, we're not going to do anymore. This thing that we've been participating in is keeping us from a relationship with God or strengthening our relationship with God. Maybe you need to put your stake in the ground just like Gideon had to do with his family and say, this is the thing that's keeping us from moving forward. There may be something personally in your own life this morning that you need to do that with. Perhaps even in your workplace this week, God would use you to be an example to your coworkers. That's how I'm going to pray with you as we close right now. I'm just going to ask you to pray with me in harmony. I'll pray out loud. You pray silently that God would move in the hearts of new hope about baptism and about how he wants to use us in this week ahead. Would you join me in that? Father, I recognize we're we're, um, talking about pretty hard things, especially for people who struggle with fear and fear of being put on display. But we recognize, God, that you put your son on display. You put him on display for the entire world. The least we can do is follow you in obedience. So we ask, I ask, for for the sake of our church, that you would fill those who are struggling with courage, that you would fill them with boldness, that, that they would take a step of faith in trusting you and believing that they can put themselves out there to say, I belong to Jesus. God, I would ask that you give them the courage even right now, those who might even be in this auditorium. I don't know who you want to talk to about this, but you do. Father, I pray for New Hope as a family, as our church body, that you would open up opportunities this week for us to represent you well, both at home and in the workplace. To be so bold that we'd be willing to identify ourselves as those who belong to Jesus Christ. Give us conviction where conviction is necessary. 
God, we ask for these really bold things in the name of our Savior who gave everything for us in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.